This is a recording made in the chapter of the open book. The fundamental, Christian fundamentals, the covering title of this series being the inspiration of scripture, and the special study this evening has to do with the books and the parchments, to borrow the words written by Paul in 2 Timothy 4. It is our custom in this meeting to read a portion of scripture together, so those of you who are sharing with us in this recording, if you care to switch off and read with us Genesis chapter 1 to chapter 2 verse 3. We have just read the opening chapter of the authorised version of the book of Genesis. But what a strange statement to make. What an ordinary everyday statement to make. How many, many times have people read the first chapter of the book of Genesis in the authorised version? And yet, what a story lies behind it. How did it come to us? How has it been preserved to us? In what way was it prepared? In what way was it written? How was it checked? How was it handed down? And all the many other things that crowd in. I want this evening, in the time we have, to survey at least the uh, pedigree, as it were, of this authorised version. And while I'm speaking this, I would like to say to some of you who are listening, I don't know whether you do it on purpose, or whether you have any reason in it, but I have a suspicion when I read somebody is going to quote the King James Version, they're nearly always going to uh, speak against it. Now, the very language in which they use to speak against the King James Version has been preserved for us in this, what has been called the well of English undefiled, the authorised version. And although it's easy for anyone to say, oh, it's got a number of mistranslations, when you come to think of the hundreds of thousands of words that are in it that are not mistranslations, that also should be remembered. We are not saying that it's an inspired version, uh, but um, there's all the difference in the world in saying the cost of the authorised version was so many shillings or so many dollars, instead of saying the cost of the authorised version was martyrdom, blood and tears and burnings and persecutions. And I think that's something we do well to remember in these days when even this book is now assailed set aside and belittled by those who should be its friends. Well, I've just got that off my chest, as it were, and now we get down to the subject before us. The um, record of the, of the, as it were, the pedigree of the authorised version, of course, goes back, back through many um, that I haven't there, uh, but eventually we find that we've got three lines of approach which are set out on this chart uh, under the headings there, the original Old Testament, the original New Testament. And neither of those exist. The uh, writing of the uh, Old Testament, the book of Moses and other parts, the originals have perished. But we have many copies. And God has been pleased to so watch over it, as we shall discover presently, uh, that we're practically certain to within a thousandth of, a, of an inch, as it were, that we've still got the very words of the original. We have the versions that come in between, 
that they are very valuable because being written in other languages, uh, they cast light upon the meanings of words that otherwise we should perhaps not quite understand. So we've got the Hebrew, the Samaritan, the Targums, and you say, what are they? They're translations or interpretations. The Masoretes, you say, what are they? Or, well, I'll tell you presently. And the Syriac Peshito, or common language version, that gives us the Old Testament. On the other side, we have three very valuable Greek manuscripts. The one which is given the code number Aleph, the Hebrew letter, is called the Sinaiticus. The one which is given the letter A as its code number is the Alexandrinus. And the one that is given the uh, letter B is Vaticanus. Now that's nothing whatever to do with the Church of Rome, any more than the Alexandrian has, has anything to do with the Church of England because it happens to be in the British Museum, nor the Sinaiticus because for a long time it belonged to Soviet Russia. It's simply the names that have been given to them, they, they haven't got the names on them, names that are given them in order that we may know what we're talking about when we're speaking about different manuscripts. And then, underneath that, is the testimony of the fathers. Now, we don't draw our doctrine from, we do not, at least in this place, because Father so-and-so said something in the first century, but whether they spoke true doctrine or whether they dribbled, if these fathers, and there's a multitude of them, if they quote hundreds and hundreds of times lines out of the Scriptures, it's utterly impossible to ignore that testimony to say they must have had something in front of them to quote from. And so we've got all those meeting together and then coming down through that series where we have uh, Tyndall, who died a martyr to give us the Bible. That's what I said. Tyndall has influenced practically every English translation since his day. All the others are an attempt to make Tyndall's version a little bit truer, a little bit more readable, but Tyndall himself is the one to owe we, under God we owe the English Bible as we know it today. Tyndall was followed by Wycliffe and Miles Coverdale and Matthews, and finally we get the authorised version. Then we get the revised and other various translations. Well now this can be a highly technical subject and be very, very difficult both for me to speak and for you to hear. So I shall have to ask those of you who are in any measure experts on this question of manuscript evidence, if I miss more out than I put in, well, say, like some people have said, well, he's doing his best, you see. Now, one of the first things I would like you to realise is the uh, different uh, ways and materials that have been used because they come into the story and influence the uh, idea of the age of the manuscript. The um, two, second and third epistle of John speaks of papyrus, and Paul speaks about parchment. Now papyrus is made by the pith of a reed that, that grew in the river Nile. It's put at right angles, the threads, and then with a sort of glue stuck together and rolled and pressed. But in the course of a few years, it gets very brittle and breaks to pieces and is not uh, suitable for being handled continuously. 
Parchment is made of the skins of animals and that is lasting. But we have one parchment. All we've got of it is this and I'll show you, you can see in this book. That's all there is existing of this parchment. Well, you say, what good has that done? Well, it's upset a good many adverse theories concerning the Gospel of John. Because there are some who say that John's Gospel as we have it was written many centuries afterwards. It's an invention of somebody. Then suddenly, in the sands of Egypt, they find that little fragment of the Gospel according to John. Because if you turn it over, you'll find the other part of John is exactly where you expect it to be. And that takes it right back to the first quarter of the second century. And according to our understanding, John wrote his gospel near the end of the first century, so it just took time enough to get across to Egypt to be worn out and buried. How, the, how could that gospel then have been written in the fourth century by some who pretended he was John when you've got a fragment of it like that te- testifying to its early existence? Now, I've actually seen the original of that. It is in between two pieces of plate glass for preservation and it is in Ryland's Museum in Manchester. So you see, he did not have a great role to bear a testimony. And when these are examined by those who are experts, there's so many things that have to be known before you could be sure of the dates. These things form a very wonderful chain of witness. Now, another thing which is uh, interesting is that there are languages which do not use alphabets. You know, the Chinese up till recently, most of their life life was spent in learning the signs and they were very clever people who knew a portion of them. And it was not possible for a typewriter to be made for you to write a complete thing in Chinese. You have to have a typewriter for romance and for uh, business and for literary things and then you'd only get a few signs out of the thousands of her. But we have the alphabetic writing, both in the Hebrew and in the Greek, and that simplifies matters tremendously. There's no need for me to turn to the scriptures. Most of you know that over the headings of Psalm 119 and its sections, you get the whole alphabet right through. But I would like to draw your attention to this chart, although you may not see it at a distance, that you will see the Samaritan text there and the Hebrew there. Well, if you examine them closely, you'll see that the Samaritan is very, very different from what we generally speak of as the Hebrew language now. And that is the original Hebrew, more like Phoenician. But when the Jews came back from their Babylonian captivity, they hated the Samaritans enough to adopt the square letters of the Babylonian captors rather than use the ancient Hebrew that the Samaritans did. And so we've got the square Hebrew letter instead of the Samaritan. That's all it amounts to. Well then, I would like you to just turn now to Judges, the 8th chapter, verse 14, just for one little piece of witness. Judges, the 8th chapter, verse 14. And caught a young man of the, of the men of Succoth, and inquired of him. And he described unto him the princes of Succoth, and the elders thereof, even threescore and seventeen men. Well, if you have a marginal reading in your Bible, you'll discover that that word described 
is the word to write. But when this was translated, there was a suspicion that writing was not possible in those very early days and they hesitated about putting the word to write there. They put it in the margin since. But today, nobody who has any pretense of understanding the history of these things would ever put forward the silly idea that Moses could never have written the five books accredited to him because in Moses' days they couldn't write. Not only do we have abundant evidence, uh, but we've also got in the British Museum those Telenamana tablets which show you that in very early days the correspondence that was carried on between the little overlords in Palestine with the Egyptian uh, pharaoh were written in Babylonian so that they could understand two languages at least that was foreign correspondence being conducted. And then long before Moses we now have the Code of Hammurabi where we have uh, graven in stone the laws that governed the land when Abraham and Sarah were living there. Now, with regard to the value of the um, of the papyrus and its interest, I'll just r- remind you of one that I've often stressed before in meetings, that when you read in Hebrews chapter 11, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, It's interesting to know that when the papyrus was uh, discovered and the rolls of it were translated, this very word turned out to be a technical term used in a law court proceedings and could be translated in the common language. Now, faith is the title deeds of things hoped for. Because the whole of Hebrews 11 is they had here no continuing city, but they seek one to come. And so you may say, oh, poor wretches, they're homeless. And they're smiling to themselves because they know within their inside pocket they've got the title deeds of a, of a mansion that's undreamed of by men down here. Faith is the title deeds of a city which hath the foundations whose builder and maker is God, you see. And then I want to read two or three extracts. Um, if you would like to take a note of the names of these books, because... There's a tremendous lot uh, that um, I shall omit. This is a book by Milligan on the Greek papyri. Now I'm just reading uh, a section here. This one is called the the um, papyrus of the prodigal son. He says. I was ashamed to come to Caradis because I am going about in rags. I wrote you that I am naked. I beseech you, mother, be reconciled to me. But I know that I have brought upon myself, punished I have been in any case, I know that I have sinned. That's, that's a, an echo of the prodigal son sort of feeling, isn't it? Somebody who didn't dare get back to meet his mother because he was in a wretched state and he says, I know that I have sinned. And then there's another one which gives you some little idea of the times in which the New Testament dared to speak in the name of truth. It says, um, I beg and beseech of you to take care of the little child and as soon as we receive wages, I will send them to you. If, good luck to you, you bear offspring, if it be a male, let it live. 
If it is a female, expose it. That's a letter, just written casually, that's what was done. And then finally, one other reference to the, these uh, ancient letters and pieces of papyrus. Irene is writing and says, good cheer. I was as much grieved and wept over the Blessed One as I wept for Didymus. And everything that was fitting I did, and all who were with me, Epaphroditus and Thermathian and Philian and Apollonius and Plantus. But truly there is nothing anyone can do in the face of such things. Do you therefore comfort one another? Hear the words? Poor Irene, she's writing to someone who's just had a loss in the family. She says, oh, we've done all we possibly can, you know. And then she doesn't know what else to say. She says, well, comfort one another. And the apostle writing to those who had lost their dear ones, he says, comfort one another. But oh, what a difference when he speaks of the risen Christ as the basis of their comfort. And poor Irene, she says these words to cheer them, but she never says, because you have a risen Saviour. But it shows you that some of the very terms that were floating about are introduced into the New Testament, not because the terms are inspired, but because they use the language of the common people. Well then, about the year 300 BC, that collection of translations which we call the Septuagint came into being. It wasn't done all at once, but between the years 300 and 200 BC, most of what we call the Septuagint came into existence. It is not very good Greek. It um, doesn't satisfy those who are classical Greek students, but it is the koine, that is the word common, the, the language of the common people. Alexander the Great didn't know he was preparing the way for the Greek New Testament. Wherever he went, the Greek language followed him. And all around the Mediterranean coast and that part of the Middle East, Greek was spoken. So when the Apostle Paul or the other writers of the New Testament were commissioned to put into writing the wonderful gospel of the grace of God, they got a very flexible and universal language already prepared for them. One of the things that I think we do well to remember is that the Septuagint is a very wonderful link between the New Testament and the Old Testament. Many a word in the New Testament would have a richer meaning if we didn't bother about the etymology of the Greek word because it's very often stained with paganism, Greek. They couldn't help themselves. But you use that to go over the Septuagint bridge and say, what was the original of the Old Testament? And then you're back on the language of inspired truth. I can't give illustrations, otherwise I shall hold up the story too long. Uh, but most of you know that I've often insisted that before we are quite satisfied that we've got the true translation of any word in the New Testament, it's always wise to have a check over with the Greek version. Well now, uh, I want just to give you, if I can, from this, a little reference to the, the uh, Greek manuscripts. And uh, in this book, which is um, one by Patterson Smythe, and you can get it out of the library here afterwards, you'll find uh, one, you won't be able to see it there very clearly, but there is a plate showing you what the Sinaitic manuscript looks like, and by examining it you'll see two or three things. First of all, 
you will find that it's um, it's called unseals. They're called unseals. That is to say, the, the letters are an inch high. And they write without a break between the words. No punctuation. And so consequently, it needs to be handled with a certain amount of care. Now, with regard to the uh, transmission of the Hebrew, you see, I should get properly tangled up with my documents in a moment. You see that, don't you? I'd like you to just let me read a piece here because it'll be so much more easy and explicit than if I just try to speak from memory. Some ancient authorities read. Now, we have that in the margin of some of the uh, uh, chapters of the Revised Version. What do these words involve? To appreciate their meaning, we must be acquainted with the history of the manuscripts, their transmission, their preservation, their differences, and their combined testimony. Now, first of all, the transmission of the Hebrew text. How did it come? How was it watched over? Every book was a necessity written by hand, and the scribe was hedged about by scruples and directions, which even though to modern minds sounds pettifogging, nevertheless preserved the text in a marvellous manner. We could easily ridicule these men for their scrupulous care, but how much we ought to thank, thank them that they watched over it as they did. A synagogue scroll must be written on the skins of clean animals. The fastenings must be the sinews taken from clean animals. Every skin must contain a fixed number of columns throughout the entire scroll. Now you see, the moment you've got that, there's no possibility of slipping a bit in or leaving a bit out. You know there are some uh, manuscripts where the last verses of Mark 16 are omitted. And therefore there are some say, oh, well, perhaps it never was a part of Mark's Gospel. But the manuscript to which they turn to show that it's omitted has got just exactly the right space left blank before they start the new book. So for some reason or another the scribe never put it in, but he evidently was going to, or he knew it was there, because otherwise his law was to allow about an inch before he started the next book. So you see, all this scruple is helpful to us. Each column must not be less than 48 or more than 60 lines. So now you know whichever was adopted, they take it right the way through with that number of lines. You couldn't squeeze anyone in, you couldn't leave anyone out without it being observed. And the breadth must consist of 30 letters. Now in this manuscript which I'm reading from, which is my own, uh, the poor lady who looked at my writing, she said that the whole copy must be fur-lined. I thought, how can it be fur-lined? And then of course I looked at my own writing, and I was able to discover that I'd said the whole copy must be first lined. That's one of the rules. They must line it all up with an invisible line, that is to say just a crease, before they start writing. So it's not a fur line manuscript. If three words be written outside a line, it is worthless. If three words are written outside the line, it's cut out and destroyed. You see? Black ink prepared according to a definite recipe must be used. Only an authentic copy must be used and no deviation is permissible. Not the smallest word or letter may be written from memory. 
Between every consonant must be a hair's breadth. Between every word the breadth of a narrow consonant. Between every new section the breadth of nine consonants. Between every book three lines. The fifth book of Moses must terminate exactly with a line. The copyist must sit in full Jewish dress. And he must wash his whole body and not begin to write the name of God with a pen not new, newly dipped in ink. He must clean the pen each time he comes to the name of God. Should even the king address him, he must take no notice of it. Rolls not observing these rules must not be used in the synagogue, but must be buried or burned or used as reading books in schools. Would you say, some of it is fantastic, isn't it? But don't you see, by the time a man had got all that in his mind, all this sacredness of it, all the rules he must keep, how it watched over that word to preserve it. So that when at last the Dead Sea Scrolls were found to contain the book of the prophecy of Isaiah, before it became unrolled and deciphered, everybody's agog to see whether it was going to say there were two Isaiahs, three Isaiahs, or whether it would contradict something that we've got. But you never saw much in the newspapers about it because, well, when they translated it, it was almost word for word for what we've got now. You see, if somebody's going to be divorced, that's put in the newspaper. If there's a whole row of houses that were all living happily, who's going to write a, a column in the paper about that? So there's the witness. As far as we go back, almost word for word, we've got what God said to Moses and the prophets, for which I think we ought to be thankful. Well, now there's a human element that I want now to mention. These Masorets. The Masora means something which has been transmitted, passed on from one to another. The Masora is a marvellous directory, indicating in almost every line in the margin how the letters and words and phrases occur. Somebody has said, everything countable was counted. Now then, we know that from Josephus uh, that the number of books in the Old Testament were 22. That doesn't mean that some have been dropped out because the, 11, the 12 minor prophets were put into one scroll and counts as one. 22, in harmony with the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Then they found, and they tell you, that the middle letter of the Pentateuch is a letter Vov, just a small letter Vov like that, and uh, that is Leviticus 11.42. And the middle word of the Pentateuch is in Leviticus 10.16, where our translation is diligently sought. And the middle verse of the Pentateuch is Leviticus 8, verse 8, the word containing the word breastplate. Well, you say, so what? That's what some people would say. But you see, you couldn't tinker with, with the whole of the Pentateuch because if somebody else carefully counted it and you left a word out, you say, whereas this doesn't agree. Why? Check and counter-check all the way through. Now let me give you one illustration of the way in which they kept this check before them. It sounds fantastic at first. There were no chapters, but only sections. So when you read in the New Testament Moses spoke in the bush, it's referring to a whole section of that part of the Old Testament where the burning bush is a very definite feature. Now the section which we read this evening, and a little bit more, is called Beroshes, in the beginning. And it has 146 verses. 
Now the memory sign against Beroshith is the word Amaziah. What do you say? What's Amaziah got to do with Genesis? Oh, but if you knew, and you knew how to add up the letters, it comes to 146. See? But aside of Beroshith, it's telling everybody who knows that the Masoretes have counted the verses and it's Amaziah, 146. But it's more than that. They counted how many times the letter Aleph, the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet, comes in the Old Testament. It comes 42,377 times. I've never checked it, friends. 42,377 times. And they have a long song, a very much like 30 days, half September, April, June and November, they've got a song. And this is one of the lines in the song. The tabernacle is my court, whither my elders do resort. You say, what's all that about? Well, I'll ask you to turn to Nehemiah chapter 7, 66. If you think you don't know what I'm talking about, well, just wait a minute, friends, because I'll try to make it speak in a minute. Nehemiah 7 and 66. The whole congregation together was forty and two thousand three hundred and three square. So that gives me forty two thousand three hundred and sixty. Now if you look at chapter seven, seventeen Now there's a there's a passage here somewhere, chapter seven seventeen. Wait a minute. 2,322. Now, I'm, I, I'm not sure whether I've got exactly the verse there, but I should have to look this up again. Uh, there is a need, you see, I want, um, I want to add to 42,360, I want to add enough, enough to bring it up to 42,377. Or perhaps it does, I don't know. There's something that I've missed there. Uh, that shows I'm not quite good enough to be qualified as a Masoret yet. But the point is this, that they invented these things, they invented that little jingle, the tabernacle is my court, whither my elders do resort, so that when you found these figures and add them together, you've got the number of times that that letter occurs in the whole of the scriptures. Well, you think, they did that with all the letters. Yes. Fancy that. And it's put down all the margins of these scrolls all over the world. There's no one book contains them all. They're all there as a vast library of information where these words are added and subtracted and kept under care. Now there is what is called keri and kethib. Keri is that which is read and kethib is that which is written. Because sometimes they read a word but it wasn't written. And sometimes they put it the other way around. Now I'll give you one illustration of a peculiar character. Judges 18.30 Judges 18.30 And the children of Dan set up the graven image and Jonathan the son of Gershom the son of Manasseh he and his sons were priests. Well, that sounds all right. What are you going to do about that? But if you were looking at the Hebrew, you would see that the word is the word Moses. 
Moses' son was Gershom. But they said, oh, we, we can't let people think that the son of Moses started idolatry in Israel. So they put a letter N above the line. You see, they put a letter N above the line and they say Manasseh while they're reading Moses. Of course, it's a little bit of a, um, what you might call a Jesuit way of treating it. Oh, they wouldn't dare add to the Bible. Oh, no. But they slip the letter N over the top so that when they read it, they say Manasseh and save the faith of Moses, but all the time they know they're looking at the word Moses and not Manasseh. All those things, of course, have got to be watched, but they all make their contribution. Well, now, let me see where I've got to. Patterson 103. There's another feature here, I think, that I want to give you. Yes. Oh, I think mainly what I was referring to here, I've given you when I read just now about the scrupulous care of writing the sacred names of God and all the various other things that had to be uh, done before it would be passed as uh, acceptable. Then, um, there's another little way in which uh, they uh, attempted to um, go through the scriptures and make notes. Here's one little sample of their peculiar approach. In the Talmud, it is estimated that there are 613 precepts of the law, positive and negative added together, 613. But when you get to Psalm 15, you'll find that they've reduced them down to 11 precepts. You might like just to see the working of the mind of these people. Psalm 15. Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle, who shall dwell in thy holy hill? Then it gives you the precepts. He that walketh uprightly, and worketh righteousness, and speaketh the truth in his heart, that backbiteth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his neighbour, nor taketh up reproach against his neighbour, in whose eyes a vile person is contemned, but he honoureth them that fear the Lord. He that sweareth to his own hurt, and changeth not, he putteth not out his money to usury, nor taketh reward against the innocent. They said, there are eleven precepts. But if you turn to Micah, chapter 6, verse 8, it'll be reduced down to three precepts. Micah, that's a long way through into the Minor Prophets, chapter 6, verse 8. He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. And Amos, that's a little bit earlier than Micah, brings it down just to one. Chapter 5, verse 4. Thus saith the Lord unto the house of Israel, Seek ye me, and ye shall live. Now you see all that searching to discover how many precepts there were. 613, then there's, then there's 11, then there's three, then there's one. 
Now they came to our Lord and they put the question to him. What do you say is the chiefest and the greatest commandment of the law? And he said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. And then the second is like unto it. So there was a thing that were everlastingly seeking and this is the way in which they sought to uh, discover. Well now we must make another move and um, I'll just mention a word or two about these other versions. The uh, Sinaiticus was discovered by Tischendorf and uh, it's called Sinaiticus because he visited the monastery which is at the foot of Mount Sinai, a Russian monastery, and to his horror he saw one or two sheets which were evidently ancient Greek in the fuel box. Well, of course, when he manifested an interest, they took them out of the fuel box, but they wouldn't give them to him. Oh, they, they saw there's something valuable here, these people. And then he returned afterwards, and then it was in the days of the Tsar of Russia, who was the head of the Russian church, and in the name of the Tsar of Russia, he was able to get them to be a bit more lenient, and they then handed to him a bundle. And the man said he sat up all night, sitting there glowing to think that his eyes were looking upon this very early manuscript, the Sardiaticus. And that was taken to the Russian church and was sold to this country some years ago and is now in the British Museum. If you want to go, go into the manuscript department, there it is. You can look at £200,000 worth without being charged a penny. There's the, there's the Sinaiticus. Well now, the other one, the Alexandrian, has been in the possession of this country about 400 years. It was sent here in the days of King Charles. And it's a very valuable manuscript. And there are some who put it even earlier than the Sinaiticus. And some put the Sinaiticus a bit earlier. It's a very difficult thing to decide. But the ink of the Alexandrian has changed from black to an orange colour. And some of the letters are faded completely away. And that has given rise to that argument as to whether we have, with the authorised version, God was manifest in the flesh, or with the revised version, who was manifest in the flesh. Because Theos is God, T-H-S, and Hos is who. And it all depends whether that circle has got a bar across the middle or whether it hasn't. But for the comfort of anybody who may be worried, it's all been brought back to light and a lot more by photography. The invisible marks which have vanished are all there to influence the photographic plate. And then we have the, the Vaticanus, which is in the custody of the Roman Catholic Church. And between those three, you can practically verify every reference you wish. They've been carefully edited and they go back to about the 4th century and they were copied, of course, from manuscripts which were earlier still. And then the Syriac, uh, on either side, the Peshito, which means common, that has translated the Old Testament and the New, so we have that as a check. It was used all bracketly in the first century. And that brings us to the, um, to the Old Latin, because in the, when the church was founded at Rome and in the Roman Empire, it soon became very evident that they would have to have the Bible in the Latin language. But it wasn't a very good one. And then Jerome, who came years later, he translated 
from the Hebrew direct into the Latin, and that Latin or Vulgate common version dominated Christian thought for a thousand years, and many of the words which we use to this day are used by us because it was put there by Jerome in his Latin version. Well then, as we said, there are the testimony of the fathers, and then coming down nearer to our own days, we have Tyndall's version. Now, with regard to Tyndall, I want to read this bit, if I can't get anything more in. He wrote these words from prison. And when he wrote them, think of Paul who was in prison asking for a cloak and for the parchments. He said, I believe, right worshipful, that you are not unaware of what may have been determined concerning me. Wherefore I beg your lordship, and that by the Lord Jesus, that if I am to remain here through the winter, you will request the commissary to have the kindness to send me from the goods of mine which he has a warmer cap, for I suffer greatly from cold in the head, and am afflicted by a perpetual catarrh, which is much increased in this cell. A warmer coat also for this which I have is very thin, a piece of cloth too to patch my leggings. My overcoat is worn out, my shirts also are worn out. He has a woollen shirt, if he will be good enough to send it. I have also with him leggings of thicker cloth to put on above. He has also warmer nightcaps, and I ask to be allowed to have a lamp in the evening. It is indeed wearisome sitting alone in the dark. But most of all I beg and beseech your clemency to be urgent with the commissary that he will kindly permit me to have the Hebrew Bible, Hebrew grammar, Hebrew dictionary, that I may pass the time in that study. In return may you obtain what you most desire, so that only it be for the salvation of your soul. But if in any other decision has been taken concerning me, to be carried out before winter, I will be patient, abiding the will of God, to the glory of the grace of my Lord Jesus Christ, whose spirit I pray may ever direct your heart. Amen. William Tyndall. And that my man who gave us the Bible in the English language paid the price by being burned at the stake. And there he was echoing the same sentiments of the Apostle Paul, writing to Timothy, he says, when you come, bring the cloak and the books, but especially the parchments. Now we don't quite know why he made the difference, but there was the similar echo. And then others followed afterwards. Wycliffe, who lived, or in spite of the plots that were made against him, and you know that they unearthed his body and scattered it, into the River Seven, and then somebody said, and now it's gone floating out into the very ocean, the same as his witness and work has done. And then, after that, there's Miles Coverdale and Matthew, Matthew's Bible, then finally, we have the authorised version. Well, I think, that although I haven't done justice to the subject, and could not hope to do it, I ought to have been much more explicit in my references and all my reckonings and so on. But I think it's, if it's only stimulated your interest and say, yes, I've taken it too much for granted. If only folks who so lightly set aside a translation would sit down and endeavour to translate a chapter, they begin to think very, very highly of those who've given us the whole Bible. What a prodigious undertaking. Now, I, I don't often quote Moffat, but I use it, because he was a master of language, although his doctrine was a little bit, I think, erratic. But he himself says, a translator is always more dogmatic than he really is, because 
He must come down one side of the fence or the other at long last. He may know that the word has two meanings. And he sits there a long time and thinks, well, what should it be? And at last he has to decide. So, let's be a little bit modest when we discover in our infinite knowledge that we could put the authorised version a bit right here or a bit right there. Think of the problems they had to face before they could decide what English language they were going to adopt. And then they were, of course, living in days when some of these manuscripts that we speak about were not in their possession. They were dealing with those which they had, but we have these more valuable ones with which we can go even further back. So I hope that this resume of just a few of the incidents that may be brought out to show you how the books were prepared and especially how they've been watched over by God in spite of all attacks. And here we have today, as near as doesn't matter, the word of God as it was originally given. We may wish that the article D was put in one place and left out in another, or that um, they would spell the name Moses always the same right through the New Testament, which they don't do. Who's going to worry about that? But that's all added up when they tell you there's so many discrepancies. They don't tell you that they're so infinitesimal it doesn't matter two hoots. Two hoots, is that good language? I hope it is. But you see, it has been said that if an enemy of the truth, say Voltaire, should edit all the Greek manuscripts we possess in order to make the biggest mess of them, the average reader would not know but what he was still reading the authorised version. I think that's a comfort to think that thousands of years have gone by with all this possibility in human error and we have to say that at long last. So let's be grateful and where there are slips, where there are needs to be corrected, well let's be very thankful that we've got the ability to correct them but let's do it in a modest spirit as the Apostle says, remembering your own selves lest you also be tempted and make mistakes also. I've made one mistake in my manuscript here. I couldn't make that add up to uh, 42,377, but um, there's something I've done wrong. Perhaps there's a good thing for me to have to confess that once in the whole of my career I have made a mistake and can't read (coughs) my own writing. Well, if that's the case when I'm dealing with manuscripts, what about manuscripts that are written in other tongues with abbreviations with all sorts of other methods that we're only just beginning to surmise or dig out. I commend it to you and I pray that as you are conscious that this book has been so miraculously preserved that you may say as they did on the day of Pentecost not speaking in tongues but say how wonderful it is that we can hear in the language in which we were born the wonderful works of God.